Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Jose Eduardo Simon will join us. His background and accomplishments are impressive, and he will touch on that shortly. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. This episode will be about innovation in family office investing. We will start with some background color, then discuss how companies, managers, and asset owners may apply his thoughts to investing and finish with some advice, though I know Jose doesn't love giving advice, but maybe we can, right, maybe we can get some out of him. Uh, investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Jose's insight. On that note, welcome, Jose. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so let's start briefly with your background, particularly how you came to work in your family business, because I know it's, it's sort of a funny story. Yes, uh, I was born, I was had the privilege of being born into a into a family business, uh, very entrepreneurial, um, all the way from the beginning. And uh, I, I uh, graduated, and also a family that that put a lot of uh, emphasis on education. And uh, I got my MBA from Columbia in 1969, which was not something that was very common at that time. And I worked for worked for multinationals uh, for about nine years. And then my dad uh, fell ill and uh, he asked me to you know, come back to the business. I wasn't too enthused about that, but that he made me an offer and said, if you come for two years, uh, you know, if you don't like it, you go back and, you know, I won't ask you anymore. So I thought, well, it's not a bad idea. So I did join the business and loved it all you know, as soon as I came in, um, and uh, to do a story short, uh, about uh, eight, 2015, I was elected chairman. I elected because the shareholders uh, hold elections uh, for the chairman of the group, and I was elected chairman in 2015, uh, which has been probably my biggest honor and privilege. Nice. Uh, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um Though MBAs are quite prevalent in, in, today, and 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 like yourself, I'm of course also a CBS alumnus. Um, yeah, in 1969, it was it was uh, you, you were a bit avant garde then. You were ahead of the curve. Uh, the MBA was not then what it is today. So, and then in terms of the business today, if if we take a look at it, what's it comprised of? Um, maybe if you could just touch on a few of the, the more well-known brands and and what countries you you're in. I think you've expanded it as well. If you like to talk about that international expansion over time, yeah, we've grown significantly. We're now in 26 countries in the U.S., Caribbean, Central America, and some of South American countries. Uh, we have. Uh, I would say four large divisions. One is specialty stores uh, that sell appliances and electronics and furniture. And that's the one that's mostly in, in the 20, 25, 26 countries. Uh, we have another um, division that's manufactures apparel. 
uh, for sale in the U.S., exclusively in the U.S. Uh, the most, the brand that is most known is Gerber Children's Wear. It's for babies, baby wear. That's our brands. Uh, but we manufacture under a lot of licenses uh, of common brands. Uh, and uh, the U.S. is our biggest market and uh, followed by by Central America and then some of the Caribbean and the South American countries. And and you you started in El Salvador, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was born by my dad is from El Salvador. My mom is actually from New York, uh, so I'm sort of a mixed. And uh, I was born in El Salvador, but because of of uh, my mom was able to eventually immigrate into the U.S. Uh, after El Salvador had a civil war in the 70s, uh, so I've been here in the you know from 1982 on. Got it. And how do you spend your time in, in the business now? Well, I'm the chair of the holding company. Uh, by design, we don't have a CEO. Uh, so I really, my authority comes from being the chair of the board. So basically, uh, I concentrate a lot of my time at governance and uh, implementing the decisions that we take at the board level. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my I have a I have a team under me that uh, gathers all the information, the vital information on all the companies, and we uh, put together a, a monthly report for the board. Uh, be, we meet as a board every three months. Although now with video, we have you know more common, more frequent meetings when it's necessary, but. The formal board meetings are every three months. Got, got in it. between, it's mostly implementing the the initiatives of the board. And and you mentioned you you made a point I think of mentioning you don't have a CEO, uh, but you're the chairman and effectively leading the board and therefore setting the direction for the company. Why why don't you have a CEO? Obviously, that's by design. Yes. Um, when we the holding company actually we we had a family meeting uh, in 2003, and we had an advisor that helped us, uh, guide us on that. And we sort of uh, came together and decided that we wanted a model that was very decentralized because we have businesses in very different areas. uh, And we thought that one CEO would not be able to to really do a good job because of how widespread in terms of countries and also of industries. Like we're, we're in retailing. Uh, our original business is a department store in Central America under the same Sivan name. Uh, so that's one. We also have a franchise of uh, Inditex, a Spanish retailer for Central America. And then we have real estate. So it's, you know, so what we did is we create, we decentralized, we created a model that was decentralized. There's a holding company, but there's also uh, each of the, of the companies has its own board and it has its own CEO. And I think the model has worked very well because that decentralization has allowed each subsidiary to, to grow uh, and have a lot of, a lot of room uh, without bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so, but that was the original intention. We thought that having a CEO at the, at the, at the holding company level would actually in, 
clash with the CEOs and chairmen of the of the subsidiary boards. So as we're both uh, CBS or Columbia Business School, um, uh, it, it sounds actually a lot like uh, B- Warren Buffett's structure at Berkshire. Yeah, you know, we we're, we license Fruit of the Loom products, so <laughs> I'm familiar with them. Uh, yeah, we have a big difference with them. I wish, um, I wish we could go to that model because we're decentralized, but we don't, the holding company does not control the cash. Uh, which Burke, which Warren Buffett does, and by controlling the cash, that allows him to reallocate capital uh, to the, those areas of the business that are actually giving you the highest, the highest performance and creation of value. We we can't do that. Each each subsidiary has its own capital and its own cash structures. And then sometimes when when I felt that we're not getting the highest uh, creation of value. With the capital location that we have, and uh, but it was very we managed to over time be able to reallocate capital, but it's a difficult uh, thing to do under the present model, and that's how we we differ a lot with the you know the Berkshire Hathaway model. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, well, maybe that's something you can. Uh... Maybe that's something you can work on in the, in the next phase of your, your I, career. I think so. Well, not, it won't be me. I, I'm retiring on the 1st of September. Uh, I'm aged out. <laughs> so, But we, we are in the middle of a generational transition from the third generation to the fourth. And I think the fourth generation is really going to move our model more to an asset management model where the holding company is going to control cash and that will allow it to be a lot more flexible with capital allocation. That sounds like it would be a sensible move uh, based on what you've said and 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 in terms of the success um, that, that, that Berkshire has had with that model. Um, and, and how is the business innovating to improve returns? Well, we, you know, like, if you don't in- innovate, you die. So we're, we've always been uh, very keen on having our businesses as uh, as innovative and, and as uh, effect, efficient as possible. Uh, we reinvest seventy percent of our profits, and uh, that's that is because of the family's view that the family's uh, shareholdings or patrimony is for the long term. You know, it's to be passed from one generation to another. Uh, we're a good social responsibility. We have five uh, percent of our profits are are channeled into social responsibility projects. So that that view of the family of long that long term view uh, allows us to reinvest, and by reinvesting, we're continuously, you know, reinvesting to bring our companies to the you know, to the forefront of whatever they're doing. Uh, for example, the retailing companies uh, have the latest software, they have the latest, uh, you know, uh, points of sale models, and uh, they've done a lot, especially with the pandemic, a lot of online uh, sales structure. So all of those are examples of uh, reinvestment that allows you to, to be at the forefront of the business, but also to grow. 
And 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 obviously the the you know this podcast is about what we call improving alpha innovation and investing ESG and technology. Um, on the ESG front, are there other angles, or is it primarily the five percent you know redeployment to ESG? No, actually, we're very proud of an initiative on our on our textile mills. Uh, so from some time ago, we were uh, using recycle. We were using recycled polyester from. Uh, you know, water bottles, polyester bottles. that was transformed into polyester uh, yarn. But lately, in the last two years, we started an operation that actually recycles cotton. In other words, from the cutting of the garments, we recycle the, the, the pieces and bring them back to basically a, a bale of cotton. And now we're able to produce a hundred percent recycled uh, textiles with cotton and polyester mix. That's very few companies in the world are actually able to do that. And it's a part of our businesses that's growing significantly because uh, there's now uh, people are putting attention to the fact that there's a lot of clothing that goes to waste. I mean, somebody was telling me the other day, uh, that uh, I think it was H&M or one of these brands that a reporter followed their their uh, supply chain and found that, you know, part of the uh, number of, of those products that had not been sold ended up in a, in a dump in, in Africa or something like that. And the CEO of the company couldn't believe it, but actually it happened. So a lot of focus now is on recycling even new products or used products. Uh, and that's part of our business that we're going to be, we put a lot of emphasis on, but we're going to be going a lot bigger because we've we've been able to dominate the technology to be able to do 100% recycled products. That's great. Yeah. And that, that does sound like it's definitely the wave of the future in terms of um, apparel manufacturing. Um, and, and to your point, yeah, I mean, I, my, you know, having spent a fair amount of time on ESG in my career over the past, however many years, um, yeah, I mean, the apparel industry is arguably a huge, um, issue from an ESG perspective, particularly fast fashion. And so the more you can recycle and to your point, avoid apparel being, effectively dumped on worn or unused or unsold yeah. that that's a no-brainer yeah what what surprised me also of this product is uh, you know i thought okay it's recycled product i didn't think it was going to be that great uh but when i saw the textiles they're really very very uh very good i mean they don't have anything In, indistinguishable inside. sorry uh, sometimes i think they're even better Got it. Uh, so that that was a big surprise to me. The other thing that happens is that you're recycling already dyed uh, pieces of cloth. So when you manufacture these textiles, you don't have to dye. And the dyeing process, as you know, is a big polluter. So you're avoiding doing that. Uh, you're avoiding polluting in manufacturing those those garments. That's great. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the, I mean, and I'm sure you don't disagree. That's like the proverbial free lunch, right? You've effectively yeah. turned waste product into 
what can be a finished good and yeah. you've avoided filling landfills and you've you've also avoided the sanitation cost of eliminating the waste yeah. so yeah. it i mean it's it, it seems like largely a no-brainer um yeah. yeah well that's great um anything else you wanted to touch on from a technological innovation or uh, sort of aside from from i mean clearly there's some technology involved in that and then you mentioned the cutting edge software but any, anything else from a technological point worth mentioning or I think from a the, from the difficulty of technology, the the project of recycling the cotton is probably the most difficult ones that I've seen in our in our group. Everything else is adopting already existing technology and making sure that your companies are at the forefront of uh, what they're doing. Right, makes sense. Um, all right, well, let's move on. Where do you see the uh, most interesting or best opportunity from an investment perspective now? Um, in, in terms of, of our businesses, uh, yeah. we're going a lot into, into finance, uh, you know, diversified from retailing into finance, uh, especially in, in Latin America, where there's a lot of people that, don't, that are unbanked. And uh, the, the cell phone technology allows you to actually do a lot of uh, banking processes through, through the phone. To a, an app on the phone, and that's something that we're getting into. For example, we developed a uh, a software or an app for uh, for for phones, where the the customer can actually get a credit approval uh, through the phone, or can or can or can order products and get a credit approval at the same time uh, through an app on their phone. So we're moving a lot into in to uh, doing everything online. That's great. Yeah. And, and irrefutably, that's the wave of the future, particularly for the unbanked. I mean, phone penetration is, um, is obviously immense and continues to grow. So that makes a lot of sense. Not only um, that, but what to, to our, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But no, no, that's fine. Please. What's, what's interesting is the, the younger generations in, in the, even in Central America and the Caribbean, uh, they're very adept. Uh, using their phones. Yeah, yeah, you were going to uh, say iPhone, so, but yeah, yeah, or any yeah, phone. Whatever, yeah, whatever, whatever, you know, Samsung, the, the yeah, Android yeah. or... Doesn't matter. Or Apple phones. And and they're very adept at adapting, you know, of using these apps, uh, you know, so that gives you an opportunity to grow with that uh, younger crowd. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, our, my daughters have been using the apps since yeah. they were in their low single digits. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then what's the biggest challenge to achieving your goals or, or the, the company's goals? We're in the middle of a generational transition. And uh, not only are the, are the owners moving from one generation to the other, but also up to now, we've been a family managed uh, business. And uh, all, you know, the, the management team that, through the companies in the last 40 years is now at the age where we're retiring and have to hand over to, to the newer generation. Those that succeed us uh, are not necessarily going to be family members. You know, we're, we need to get the most capable people, but that succession process is a, is a challenge we're going through at the moment. Uh, it's, you know, um, it's not easy when you have a, a big company 
to make that transition. Um, so that, I would think that that's the biggest challenge at the moment. And it's also for the family uh, also to understand that this is a, a, a meritocracy and it's, it's a professionally managed business and they shouldn't really get involved. <laughs> you know, if, if you fire a family member, we have to fire a family member so they don't make a big fuss about it. Uh, you know, as as owners, as family members, it's difficult for them to separate themselves from the businesses, but they have to do that. And simultaneously, you know, a canonical Columbia Business School debate is principal agency conflict. How how do you deal with that in terms of uh, presumably the family owns the vast majority, if not the entire business, and you know, if you're hiring non-family members, they're agents by definition, and you know, how, how do you keep them aligned, I guess, would be a, maybe a nicer or better way to say, ask the question. If well, that that, you know, like I said, we were, we were at the moment, we're still a family, family run uh, group, but we're moving to a point where, uh, you know, as the successors are going to be professionals, you're separating ownership from management. R- right. And that's where that's where you have to really make sure that the the owners have the right to a certain you know to information to make sure the companies are well run that the debt levels don't don't get out of hand et cetera et cetera but but they also shouldn't be getting involved other than through the governance structures in the running of the businesses so you have to keep that se- that separation. And that's a daily. That's a daily situation. That's a daily task. Right, and not to um, belabor it, but I, I guess my question is along the lines of the, that transition. How, how do you believe you'll be able to align the incentives of the third-party management, uh, the non-family members? Do, do you have? Have you? You know, is that something you've thought through yet, or worked? You know, in terms of alignment of interests, so that theirs are aligned with yours. Well, the way the way we do it is by uh, running compensation based on the creation value. Uh, you know that you, your your medium and long term compensation is based on the value you created in that business, and that that aligns the the you know the the benefit to the management with the benefit to the owner. What what's a red flag? Uh when you're either looking to invest in a business or buy a business, something that sort of scares you or makes you think twice? I mean, we, we do, when we buy a company, we do a lot of due diligence. But I also put a lot of emphasis on the character of the owners that we're buying from. Um, I mean, I've had, for example, a couple of situations where... Uh, you know, they, we bought companies where the owners are people of high integrity, that they run the businesses very clean. And what we've taken over, because many times, a well, if you're buying a well-run business, you're probably paying a lot of goodwill for that. But what we find is on the other place where we buy it, uh, those businesses are, are very solid and we don't get any surprises. On the other hand, we've had a couple of situations where we bought businesses from people who were, you know, frauds or cheating. And we ended up 
you know, paying for something that wasn't what was supposed to be, even though we used big four accounting firms to do the due diligence and to do all of the all of the uh, studies and everything. But still, we were put. You, you, we, we bought something that wasn't what it was supposed to be. Yeah, so no, and the character look, of the owner is a yeah. big thing, including. But, but but that's assuming that you also have to do a lot of uh, due diligence when you're buying the business. Yeah, what what? Well, that that segues into a question I was going to ask you subsequently anyway, which is what what any lessons from that? Any anything that you've I understand? You know, you've used top big four firms. You've done good due diligence. Look. If someone's willing to commit fraud and willing to go to jail or, you know, be fraudulent, it's very hard often to know or to. So but what lessons were there from that, if any, or anything that you've subsequently learned to prevent future situations? You know, we went back on that situation to study what did we do wrong. Uh, And the CEO of the company that that bought it uh, is a very is our most successful CEO, a very responsible person. He, and we ended up seeing that we did everything that we had to do with with the, 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 the due diligence. Uh, you know, we had good advisors. Um, in fact, I told the CEO he he was so upset about it that uh, you know I had to tell him, look, you have to calm down because if you have a heart attack, I'm going to have a much bigger problem <laughs> than than losing you know the X million dollars we're going to lose from this. Purchase, but what you said is 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 true. I mean, if, if somebody wants to commit fraud, yeah, it's hard. They'll find a way. It also was in a country where the guy had a was very very uh, involved with the government, so he was able to to fudge numbers of the government information that uh, yeah. you, know, you don't get in other countries. Got it. And that's a good segue to. Um... Inflation in Central America. Inflation is is not something new to Central America, right? Um, and but yet to to the Western developed world, the U.S., Europe, uh, it's you know it's been a it's been in latent for decades now since since the eighties, really. Um, how do you deal with it historically? Well, Central America and the Caribbean don't have the levels of of uh, inflation that uh, South America. Some some of the South American countries, like Bolivia. Or Venezuela or Argentina had. Uh, they've been manageable, more, more higher than the U.S. Right. But but still manageable. Well, we do certain a number of things. Like for example, in many of the, we have a, a large uh, consumer credit portfolio, and what we do is we borrow from local banks in local currency. What we have in the consumer credit in the inventory. So that if you have a devaluation uh, or if you have inflation, both devalue at the same time. The asset and the liability in your capital is somewhat protected. Uh, in terms of the inflation per se, uh, you know, they haven't been levels that are, of, like I said before, of those, of like Argentina, Bolivia, or Venezuela. So we've been able to manage it. The problem is all of those economies and all of those uh, have a very very low per capita income, so that any any increase in prices hits the ability of the of the consumer to buy. So you do you do have you might your sales might be the same or a little bit higher in dollars, or your units go down because people just can't buy 
the, the, the same amount of units when the price is going up. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, on, on a more, more fun topic, what, what's, what, do you have a favorite book or one you've read recently? Well, that's a difficult question. I, I don't think I have a favorite book, but the one that comes to mind, one that really made a, an impact on me um, that I read about 10 years ago was uh, from a British philosopher, Jonathan Glover, and it's called Humanity, the Moral History of the 20, 20th Century. What he did is he studied uh, all of the genocides uh, and uh, the Holocaust and things like that in the 20th century, and he tried to extract common lessons from them. And he found that when when you when people when a people start um, objectivizing another person or another nationality or another type of religion or whatever. And you start losing the seeing the humanity in that other person, anything can happen. And he was talking about the first thing that leads you in that path is name calling. So that really made me understand that even when somebody, you know, when you say that another nationality, uh, like what Trump said, Mexicans are rapists. Maybe when you hear it, you don't give it much importance, but that's the first step in dehumanizing a, a nationality or a peoples or a religion. And if you continue on that path, you can end up in a genocide or you can end up, end up uh, in a Holocaust. So that book really made an impact on me. Um, other than that, I read many, many, many books, um, you know, but I really can't. I can see why that resonated with you and, and you, it's been poignant for you for a decade. And um, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I couldn't agree more with the premise. And um, I think that it sounds as though the author and the book are spot on. And uh, it sounds like we should all read that. I, I certainly yeah. haven't, but yeah. Um, well, I know you don't like giving advice, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, it would be remiss of me not to ask you for it. So, or any, maybe not advice, but any words of wisdom you had have for uh, investors navigating this landscape, either in, in, in manufacturing, retail, apparel, or otherwise? Yeah, I don't, yeah, like I said, jokingly, we don't give advice. I can only tell you what our experience is. Um, I think you have to be very objective when, uh, especially when you're when we're buying businesses or investing in new businesses, very objective about the pros and cons, um, looking at all of the options uh, and assigning probabilities to each option so that, you know, you, that you don't, you, you take into account the best that can happen, but also the worst that you can happen and protect yourself against if the worst happens, what can you do to protect yourself against that? And that can avoid you, you know, going bankrupt if you go into too much debt or or, or making big mistakes. You know, I think that the, the the defining of all of the different options and being open to look at, at everything. Um, because many times when you're looking at a 
buying or a new project, you tend to be very optimistic and only think of the good scenarios. But I think you have to discipline yourself to see all of the scenarios, including worst case scenarios, so that you can protect yourself against that happening if it happens. I, I couldn't agree more. Having been an investor for the last 30 years, um, at the at both the security level and and investing with managers and 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 if I think of many of the best ones, they do exactly that. They they look at probability weightings. They look at different scenarios. They look at their worst case. They don't necessarily invest if the probability is too high of a worst case scenario that could lead to a massively adverse outcome. So I I think that's great advice for anyone at any level. Um, anything we didn't discuss that you'd like to share with our listeners? Not that I can think of off, uh, you know, off the cuff at the moment. Okay. Well, look, Jose, I, uh, you know, we'd like to thank you for the super interesting discussion, uh, sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Uh, we hope listeners have a better appreciation how one of, um, well, I, I guess I'll say the uh, our hemisphere's more thoughtful business leaders is thinking of, of about um, managing and running a, a, a substantial business. And, and this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we'll speak with another thought leader uh, who'll provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. Until then, stay well. And thank you, Jose. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG and Technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.